Part three of The Man Who Would Be King. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa. The Man Who Would Be King by Rudyard Kipling. Part three. I can't tell all we did for the next six months, because Dravot did a lot I couldn't see the hang of, and he learned their lingo in a way I never could. My work was to help the people plough, and now and again go out with some of the army and see what the other villages were doing, and make them throw rope bridges across the ravines which cut up the country horrid. Dravot was very kind to me, but when he walked up and down in the pine wood, pulling that bloody red beard of his with both fists, I knew he was thinking plans I could not advise about, and I just waited for orders. But Dravot never showed me disrespect before the people. They were afraid of me and the army, but they loved Dan. He was the best of friends with the priests and the chiefs, but anyone could come across the hills with a complaint, and Dravot would hear him out fair, and call four priests together and say what was to be done. He used to call him Billy Fish from Bashkai, and Picky Kurgan from Shoe, and an old chief we called Kafuzalem. It was like enough to his real name, and old councils with them while there was any fighting to be done in small villages. That was his council of war, and the four priests of Bashkai, Shu, Karwak, and Medora was his privy council. Between the lot of them they sent me with forty men and twenty rifles, and sixty men carrying turquoises into the Gorban country to buy those handmade martini rifles that come out of the Amir's workshops at Kabul, from one of the Amir's Herati regiments that would have sold the very teeth out of their mouths for turquoises. I stayed in Gorband a month, and gave the governor there the pick of my baskets for hush money, and bribed the colonel of the regiments and more, and between the two and the tribes people we got more than a hundred handmade martinis, a hundred good coat gesiles that I'll throw to six hundred yards, and forty man-loads of very bad ammunition for the rifles. I came back with what I had, and distributed them among the men that the chiefs sent me in to drill. Dravot was too busy to attend to those things, but the old army that we first made helped me, and we turned out five hundred men that could drill, and two hundred that knew how to hold arms pretty straight. Even those corkscrewed and made guns was a miracle to them. Dravot talked big about powder shops and factories, walking up and down in the pine wood when the winter was coming on. "'I won't make a nation,' says he. "'I'll make an empire. These men aren't niggers, they're English. Look at their eyes, look at their mouths, look at the way they stand up. They sit on chairs in their own houses.' They're the lost tribes, or something like it, and they've grown to be English. I'll take a census in the spring if the priests don't get frightened. There must be a fair two million of them in these hills. The villages are full of little children. Two million people, two hundred and fifty thousand fighting men, and all English. They only want the rifles and a little drilling. Two hundred and fifty thousand men ready to cut in on Russia's right flank when she tries for India. Peachy man, he says, chewing his beard in great unks. We shall be emperors, emperors of the earth. 
Raja Brooke will be a suckling to us. I'll treat with the Viceroy on equal terms. I'll ask him to send me twelve pickled English, twelve that I know of, to help us govern a bit. There's Macrae, Sergeant Pensioner at Segowley. Many's the good dinner he's given me, and his wife a pair of trousers. There's Donkin, the warder of Tungu Jail. There's hundreds that I could lay my hand on if I was in India. The Viceroy shall do it for me. I'll send a man through in the spring for those men, and I'll write for the dispensation from the Grand Lodge for what I've done as Grand Master. That and all the Sniders that'll be thrown out when the native troops in India take up the Martini. They'll be worn smooth, but they'll do for fighting in these hills. Twelve English, a hundred thousand Sniders run through the Amir's country in driblets. I'd be content with twenty thousand in one year, and we'd be an empire. When everything was shipshape, I'd hand over the crown, this crown I'm wearing now, to Queen Victoria on my knees, and she'd say, Rise up, Sir Daniel Dravot. Oh, it's big, it's big, I tell you. But there's so much to be done in every place, Bashkai, Kawak, Shu, and everywhere else. What is it? I says. There are no more men coming in to be drilled this autumn. Look at those fat black clouds, they're bringing the snow. It isn't that, says Daniel, putting his hand very hard on my shoulder. And I don't wish to say anything that's against you, for no other living man would have followed me and made me what I am as you have done. You're a first-class commander-in-chief, and the people know you. But it's a big country, and somehow you can't help me, Peachy, in the way I want to be helped. Go to your blasted priest, then, I said. And I, I was sorry when I made that remark, but it did hurt me sore to find Daniel talking so superior when I'd drilled all the men and done all he told me. Don't let's quarrel, Peachy, says Daniel, without cursing. You're a king, too, and half of this kingdom is yours. But can't you see, Peachy, we want cleverer men than us now, three or four of them that we can scatter about for our deputies. It's a hugest great state, and I can't always tell the right thing to do, and I haven't time for all I want to do, and is the winter coming on and all. He put half his beard into his mouth, all red like the gold of his crown. I'm sorry, Daniel, says I. I've done all I could. I've drilled the men, and shown the people how to stack their oats better, and I've brought in these tinware rifles from Gulband. But I know what you're driving at. I take it kings always feel oppressed that way. There's another thing, too, says Dravot, walking up and down. The winter's coming, and these people won't be giving much trouble, and if they do, we can't move about. Now, I want a wife. For God's sake, leave the women alone, I says. We've both got all the work we can, though I am a fool. Remember the contract and keep clear of women. The contract only lasted till such time as we was kings, and kings we have been these months past, says Dravot, weighing the crown in his hand. You go get a wife too, Peachy, a nice strapping plump girl that'll keep you warm in the winter. They're prettier than English girls, and we can take the pick of them. Boil them once or twice in hot water, they'll come out like chicken and ham. Don't tempt me, I says. 
I will not have any dealings with a woman, not till we're a damn side more settled than we are now. I've been doing the work of two men, and you've been doing the work of three. Let's lie off a bit and see if we can get some better tobacco from Afghan country and run in some good liquor and no women. Who's talking of women? says Dravot. I said wife. A queen to breed a king's son for the king. A queen out of the strongest tribe that'll make them your blood brothers and that'll lie by your side and tell you all the people thinks about you in their own affairs. That's what I want. Do you remember that Bengali woman I kept at Mogul Sarai when I was a plate-layer? says I. A fat lot of good she was to me. She taught me the lingo and one or two other things. But what happened? She ran away with a station-master's servant and half my month's pay. Then she turned up at Dadur Junction in tow of an half-caste and had the impudence to say I was her husband, all among the drivers in the running-shed, too. We've done with that, says Dravot. These women are whiter than you or me, and a queen I will have for the winter months. For the last time I'm asking, Dan, do not, I says. It'll only bring us harm. The Bible says that kings ain't to waste their strength on women, especially when they've got a new raw kingdom to work with. For the last time of answering, I will, said Dravot. And he went away through the pine trees, looking like a big red devil, the sun being on his crown and beard and all. But getting a wife was not as easy as Dan thought. He put it before the council, and there was no answer till Billy Fish said that he'd better ask the girls. Dravot damned them all round. "'What's wrong with me?' he shouts, standing by the idol Imbra. "'Am I a dog, or am I not enough of a man for your wenches? Haven't I put the shadow of my hand over this country? Who stopped the last Afghan raid?' It was me, really, but Dravot was too angry to remember. "'Who bought your guns? Who repaired the bridges? Who's the Grand Master of the sign cut in the stone?' says he. And he thumped his hand on the block that he used to sit on in Lodge and at Council, which opened like Lodge always. Billy Fish said nothing, and no more did the others. "'Keep your hair on, Dan,' said I, and ask the girls. "'That's how it's done at home, and these people are quite English.' "'The marriage of the king is a matter of state,' says Dan, in a white-hot rage, for he could feel, I hope, that he was going against his better mind. He walked out of the council room, and the others sat still, looking at the ground. "'Billy Fish,' says I to the chief of Bashkai, "'what's the difficulty here? A straight answer to a true friend.' "'You know,' says Billy Fish.' How should a man tell you who knows everything? How can daughters of men marry gods or devils? It's not proper. I remembered something like that in the Bible, but if after seeing us as long as they had, they still believed we were gods, it wasn't for me to undeceive them. A god can do anything, says I. If the king is fond of a girl, he'll not let her die. She'll have to said Billy Fish. There are all sorts of gods and devils in these mountains, and now and again a girl marries one of them and isn't seen any more. Besides, you two know the mark cut in the stone. Only the gods know that. 
"'We thought you were men till you showed the sign of the master.' "'I wished then that we had explained about the loss of the genuine secrets of a master mason at the first go-off, but I said nothing. All that night there was a blowing of horns in the little dark temple halfway down the hill, and I heard the girl crying fit to die. One of the priests told us that she was being prepared to marry the king.' "'I'll have no nonsense of that kind,' says Dan. "'I don't want to interfere with your customs, but I'll take my own wife.' "'The girl's a little bit afraid,' says the priest. "'She thinks she's going to die, and they are heartening of her up down in the temple.' "'Hearten her very tender, then,' says Dravot. "'Or I'll hearten you with the butt of a gun, so you'll never want to be heartened again.' He licked his lips, did Dan and stayed up walking about more than half the night, thinking of the wife that he was going to get in the morning. I wasn't by any means comfortable, for I knew that dealings with a woman in foreign parts, though you was a crowned king twenty times over, could not but be risky. I got up very early in the morning, while Dravot was asleep, and I saw the priests talking together in whispers, and the chiefs talking together too, and they looked at me out of the corners of their eyes. "'What is up, fish?' I say to the Bashkai man, who was wrapped up in his furs and looking splendid to behold. "'I can't rightly say,' says he, "'but if you can make the king drop all this nonsense about marriage, you'll be doing him and me and yourself a great service.' "'That I do believe,' says I. "'But sure you know, Billy, as well as me, having fought against and for us, that the king and me are nothing more than two of the finest men that God Almighty ever made. Nothing more, I do assure you. That may be, says Billy Fish, and yet I should be sorry if it was. He sinks his head upon his great fur cloak for a minute and thinks. King, says he, be you man or God or devil, I'll stick by you today. I have twenty of my men with me, and they will follow me. We'll go to Bashkai until the storm blows over. A little snow had fallen in the night, and everything was white except the greasy fat clouds that blew down and down from the north. Dravot came out with his crown on his head, swinging his arms and stamping his feet and looking more pleased than punch. For the last time, drop it, Dan, says I in a whisper. Billy Fisher says that there will be a row. A row among my people, says Dravot. Not much. Peachy, you're a fool not to get a wife too. Where's the girl? Says he, with a voice as loud as the braying of a jackass. Come up, all the chiefs and priests, and let the emperor see if his wife suits him. There was no need to call anyone. They were all there, leaning on their guns and spears round the clearing in the centre of the pinewood. A lot of the priests went down to the little temple to bring up the girl, and the horns blew fit to wake the dead. Billy Fish saunters round and gets as close to Daniel as he could, and behind him stood his twenty men with matchlocks, not a man of them under six feet. I was next to Dravot, and behind me was twenty men of the regular army. Up comes the girl, and a strapping wench she was, covered with silver and turquoises, but white as death, and looking back every minute at the priests. She'll do, 
said Dan, looking her over. "'What's to be afraid of, lass? Come and kiss me.' He puts his arm round her. She shuts her eyes, gives a bit of a squeak, and down goes her face in the side of Dan's flaming red beard. "'The slut's bitten me,' says he, clapping his hand to his neck, and sure enough his hand was red with blood. Billy Fish and two of his matchlock men catches hold of Dan by the shoulders and drags him into the Bashkai lot, while the priest howls in their lingo, "'Neither God nor devil but a man!' I was all taken aback, for a priest cut at me in front, and the army began firing into the Bashkai men. "'God Almighty,' says Dan, "'what is the meaning of this?' "'Come back, come away,' says Billy Fish. "'Ruin and mutiny is the matter. We'll break for Bashkai if we can.' I tried to give some sort of orders to my men, the men of the regular army, but it was no use. So I fired into the brown of them with an English martini and drilled three beggars in a line.' The valley was full of shouting, howling creatures, and every soul was shrieking, not a god nor a devil, but only a man. The Bashkai troops stuck to Billy Fish, all they were worth, but their matchlocks wasn't half as good as the cardboard breech-loaders, and four of them dropped. Dan was bellowing like a bull, for he was very wrothy, and Billy Fish had a hard job to prevent him running out at the crowd. "'We can't stand,' says Billy Fish. "'Make a run for it down the valley. "'The whole place is against us.' "'The matchlock men ran, "'and we went down the valley in spite of Dravot. "'He was swearing horrible "'and crying out that he was a king. "'The priests rolled great stones on us, "'and the regular army fired hard, "'and there wasn't more than six men, "'not counting Dan, Billy Fish and me, "'that came down to the bottom of the valley alive.' Then they stopped firing, and the horns in the temple blew again. "'Come away, for God's sake, come away,' says Billy Fish. "'They'll send runners out to all the villages before ever we get to Bashkai. I can protect you there, but I can't do anything now.' My own notion is that Dan began to go mad in his head from that hour. He stared up and down like a stuck pig. Then he was all for walking back alone and killing the priest with his bare hands, which he could have done. "'An emperor am I,' says Daniel, "'and next year I shall be a knight of the queen.' "'All right, Dan,' says I, "'but come along now while there's time.' "'It's your fault,' says he, "'for not looking after your army better. "'There was mutiny in the midst, and you didn't know, "'you damned engine-driving, plate-laying, missionaries, pass-hunting hound. He sat upon a rock and called me every foul name that he could lay tongue to. I was too heart-sick to care, though it was all his foolishness that brought the smash. I'm sorry, Dan, says I, but there's no accounting for natives. This business is our fifty-seven. Maybe we'll make something out of it yet when we've got to Bashkai. Let's get to Bashkai, then, says Dan, and by God, when I come back here again, I'll sweep the valley so there isn't a bug in a blanket left. We walked all that day, and all that night Dan was stumping up and down on the snow, chewing his beard and muttering to himself. There's no hope of getting clear, said Billy Fish. The priests have sent runners to the villages to say that you are only men. Why didn't you stick on as gods till things was more settled? 
"'I'm a dead man,' says Billy Fish, and he throws himself down on the snow and begins to pray to his gods. Next morning we was in a cruel bad country, all up and down, no level ground at all, and no food either. The six Bashkai men looked at Billy Fish, hungry way, as if they wanted to ask something, but they never said a word. At noon we came to the top of a flat mountain, all covered with snow, and when we climbed up into it, behold, there was an army in position waiting in the middle. The runners have been very quick, says Billy Fish, with a little bit of a laugh. They're waiting for us. Three or four men began to fire from the enemy's side, and a chance shot took Daniel in the calf of the leg. That brought him to his senses. He looks across the snow at the army and sees the rifles that we'd brought into the country. We're done for, says he. They are Englishmen, these people, and it's my blasted nonsense that's brought you to this. Get back, Billy Fish, and take your men away. You've done what you could, and now cut for it. Carnan, says he, shake hands with me and go along with Billy. Maybe they won't kill you. I'll go and meet them alone. It's me that did it. Me, the king. Go, says I. Go to hell, Dan. I'm with you here. Billy Fish, you clear out and we two will meet those folk. I'm a chief, says Billy Fish, quite quiet. I'll stay with you. My men can go. The Bashkai fellows didn't wait for a second word, but ran off, and Dan and me and Billy Fish walked across to where the drums were drumming and the horns were horning. It was cold, awful cold. I've got that cold in the back of my head now. There's a lump of it there. The punker coolies had gone to sleep. Two kerosene lamps were blazing in the office, and the perspiration poured down my face and splashed on the blotter as I leaned forward. Carnahan was shivering, and I feared that his mind might go. I wiped my face, took a fresh grip of the piteously mangled hands, and said, "'What happened after that?' The momentary shift of my eyes had broken the clear current. "'What was you pleased to say?' whined Carnahan. They took him without any sound. Not a little whisper all along the snow. Not though the king knocked down the first man that set hand on him. Not though old Peachy fired his last cartridge into the brown of him. Not a single solitary sound did those swines make. They just closed up tight. And I tell you, their first stunk. There was a man called Billy Fish, a good friend of us all. And they cut his throat, sir, then and there like a pig. And the king kicks up the bloody snow and says, We've had a dashed fine run for our money. What's coming next? But Peachy, Peachy tell you, Pharaoh, I tell you, sir, in confidence as betwixt two friends, he lost his head, sir. No, he didn't neither. The king lost his head. So he did, all along on one of those cunning rope bridges. Kindly let me have the paper cutter, sir. It tilted this way. 
they marched him a mile across that snow to a rope bridge over a ravine with a river at the bottom. You may have seen such. They prodded him behind like an ox. Damn your eyes, says the king. Do you suppose I can't die like a gentleman? He turns to Peachy. Peachy that was crying like a child. I've brought you to this, Peachy, he says. Brought you out of your happy life to be killed in Kafiristan, where you was late commander-in-chief of the Emperor's forces. Say you forgive me, Peachy. I do, says Peachy. Fully and freely I do forgive you, Dan. Shake hands, Peachy, says he. I'm going now. Out he goes, looking neither right nor left, and when he was plumb in the middle of those dizzy dancing ropes, cut your buggers, he shouts, and they cut, and old Dan fell, turning round and round and round twenty thousand miles, for he took half an hour to fall till he struck the water, and I could see his body caught in a rock the gold crown close beside. But do you know what they did to Peachy between two pine trees? They crucified him, sir, as Peachy's hand will show. They used wooden pegs for his hands and feet, but he didn't die. He hung there and screamed, and they took him down next day and said it was a miracle that he wasn't dead. They took him down. Poor old Peachy, they hadn't done them any harm. They hadn't done them any. He rocked to and fro and wept bitterly, wiping his eyes with the back of his scarred hands and moaning like a child for some ten minutes. I was cruel enough to feed him up in the temple because they said he was more of a god than old Daniel that was a man. Then they turned him out in the snow and told him to go home. And Peachy came home in about a year, begging along the roads quite safe. For Daniel Draver, he walked before and said, Come along, Peachy, it's a big thing we're doing. The mountains, they danced at night, and the mountains, they tried to fall on Peachy's head. But Dan, he held up his hand. And Peachy came along, bent double. He never let go of Dan's hand, and he never let go of Dan's head. They gave it to him as a present in the temple to remind him not to come again, and though the crown was pure gold and Peachy was starving, never would Peachy sell the same. You know Dravot, sir. You knew right worshipful brother Dravot. Look at him now. He fumbled in the mass of rags round his bent waist, brought out a black horsehair bag embroidered with silver thread, and shook therefrom onto my table the dried, withered head of Daniel Dravot. The morning sun that had long been paling the lamps struck the red beard and blind, sunken eyes, struck too a heavy circlet of gold studded with raw turquoises that Carnahan placed tenderly on the battered temples. 
"'You be old now,' said Carnan. "'The emperor in his habit as he lived, "'the king of Kafiristan, with his crown upon his head. "'Poor old Daniel, that was a monarch once.' "'I shuddered, for in spite of defacements manifold, "'I recognised the head of the man of Marwa Junction.' Carnahan rose to go. I attempted to stop him. He was not fit to walk abroad. "'Let me take away the whisky, and give me a little money,' he gasped. "'I was a king once. I'll go to the deputy commissioner, and ask to sit in the poorhouse till I get my health. No, thank you. I can't wait till you get a carriage from me. I've urgent private affairs, in the south, at Marwa.' He shambled out of the office and departed in the direction of the Deputy Commissioner's house. That day at noon I had occasion to go down the blinding hot mall, and I saw a crooked man crawling along the white dust of the roadside, his hat in his hand, quavering dolorously after the fashion of street singers at home. There was not a soul in sight, and he was out of all possible earshot of the houses, and he sang through his nose, turning his head from right to left. The Son of God goes forth to war, a golden crown to gain. His blood-red banner streams afar, who follows in his train. I waited to hear no more but put the poor wretch into my carriage and drove him off to the nearest missionary for eventual transfer to the asylum. He repeated the hymn twice while he was with me, whom he did not in the least recognise, and I left him singing it to the missionary. Two days later I inquired after his welfare of the superintendent of the asylum. He was admitted suffering from sunstroke. He died early yesterday morning, said the superintendent. Is it true that he was half an hour bareheaded in the sun at midday? Yes, said I. But do you happen to know if he had anything upon him by any chance when he died? Not to my knowledge, said the superintendent. And there the matter rests. End of part three. End of The Man Who Would Be King by Rudyard Kipling. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.